Well, friends, let us turn now to the book of the Revelation, the chapter 2, and we read from the verse 8 to the verse 11. The book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verse 8 to the verse 11. This is the word of God, the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Let us hear his word. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And may the Lord be pleased to bless the public reading of his most holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word to our very needful souls here this night. May the Lord bless it to us always. Let us pray, let us bring our many petitions before him, and even praying for the prayer meeting later on uh, this evening. Let us come before the Lord together in prayer. Well, dear friends, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing. They're in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2. We arrive this evening in the verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2 and the letter to the church at Smyrna. We continue on now in our series of studies preaching through this last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, where Christ seals up prophecy. And uh, we want to consider this letter here now to the church at Smyrna, verses 8 to 11, these four verses. And I'm going to, once again, just give a few introductory comments as we begin this epistle. This epistle, and indeed all the epistles, as we remarked last week, and it's important that I remind you of this, are those which are not just meant for the churches in that day, but all the Word of God, it's paramount that we see it, is meant for us today. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, as the Apostle says, and all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So he says all Scripture. And that would include these epistles. We could even say, We know certainly all the other epistles are written directly to churches, but we know they're written to the church general, the church of God throughout all the gospel age. Not just these. It would be ludicrous to suggest that this word does not apply. All of the word of God is relevant to us. And what I hope to see, to show you this evening, I I did say that there is a 
very clear structure to the book of the Revelation is that from Revelation chapter 1 to chapter 4 is the first cycle of seven cycles that we'll see in the book of the Revelation. And it is addressed to the churches. The churches are in view. Christ is amidst the church. And in chapter 4, he's also in heaven. While he is walking amidst the lampstands, we see the Lamb upon the throne in heaven at the same time. It's quite remarkable. And this all on the same day when John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's the Lord's Day Sabbath. There remaineth the Sabbath keeping, Hebrews 4, 9, for the people of God. And Paul, or John, was rather in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And John was given a glimpse not only of Christ walking amidst the lampstands, but Christ on the throne on the same day. He is the one who said to Nicodemus, that who is the Son of Man who was on earth, but also in heaven. He is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. And as we saw last time, this letter, and indeed all the other epistles, teach us many things, including the fact of God-ordained government. It's written to a church. It's not written to a presbytery. Churches are to be independent, and they appoint their own pastors, and they practice their discipline. And you notice the church has to act here. Another church isn't um, countenanced to approach them at all. Another church isn't... uh, exhorted to speak to this church, but rather the Lord speaks to each church. Our practice, as we said last week, of church government and church rule is founded on Scripture. It's laid out in Scripture. And then secondly this evening, we recall, as I said, John here at the time now, somewhere around 98 AD, is suffering for the sake of Christ. The emperor now, Domitian, He was, of course, perhaps even worse of a tyrant than uh, Nero. But John, remember in chapter 1 here, in chapter 1 there, verse 9, he says, I, John, who also am your brother and a companion in tribulation. And certainly as we look at this epistle tonight, that of Smyrna, we see how they were in tribulation. They were suffering. John was suffering on the island of Patmos. They were suffering economic hardship, as we'll see tonight. The churches were persecuted in many different ways. So here tonight, what we'll see is a prime example of how the church throughout the gospel age, in one way or another, will suffer from a God-hating world. And remember, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, marvel not that the world hate you, for it hated him first. Now, however, as we consider suffering here, as we suffer with them, even in our day, remember where the Lord is. The opening of the book of the Revelation gives us the glimpse, doesn't it, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. We saw him in chapter 1, in all of his priestly garb, there as the great high priest with the girdle, And with that long robe, that which only the priest would wear when he officiated on behalf of the people, he is interceding. We are told in Hebrews that he ever liveth to intercede for his people. 
So, but he's also in the midst of the lampstands, Revelation chapter 1, but he's also on the throne at the same time, Revelation 4, which tells us that he's not only priest, but he's king. And we're told there in Revelation 4 and verse and chapter 5 that he alone is worthy to unloose the seals. That's the unfolding of the events that take place throughout the book of the Revelation. And he has his ministers in his right hand. He walks amidst the lampstands and he's strengthening his churches and he's strengthening his ministers. And uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, and he has the keys of hell and death. And he opens up the door of death and hell. As we said last week, keys represent power over all things. And remember what he said, all authority on earth and in heaven has been given unto him. Now I mentioned in the first sermon that the book of the Revelation, as I mentioned as well just a little while ago, has seven cycles as we read it. And those seven cycles lead to one climactic event, and that is the end of the world and the ushering in of a new heavens and a new earth. But those seven cycles, let me say, are what we call synchronous. They all happen at the same time. They are things leading up to the end of the world, but seen from different vantage points, seen from different angles. Like I said, you could drive to your house from here, and you would take a picture of, say, lampposts or trees. It's the same journey, but you're seeing it from different angles. That's the idea. And so they looked up to, or they looked to things leading up to Christ's coming. And the first view is this first cycle here. And the Lord would have us to see that he has his eyes on the church. He has his all-seeing flame of fire eyes upon the church. And nothing goes unnoticed. And that is both encouraging, but it's very solemn, isn't it, at the same time? It's encouraging for those who are faithful. But for those who are not, it, it is very solemn and it's very sobering. So chapters 1 to chapter 4 make up the first cycle. And they give us that perspective or that angle concerning the church of Jesus Christ coming to that great day when we will see him. So let me just give you the cycles, perhaps in a little bit more detail. And you can jot them down and you'll see perhaps uh, in our lessons to come or our studies and sermons to come how they all fit together. So in chapter 1 to chapter 4, we have the address to the church. In fact, a lot of people don't realize this, but in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit directs the attention of John to the churches immediately, verse 11. Notice in verse 11. We read halfway, that. let's read from the beginning, saying, I am Alpha and Omega. Here is Christ speaking, the first and the last and what thou seest, he's telling John this, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus. So not just the epistles, but the whole of the book of the Revelation is actually sent to the churches. 
including chapter 1 all the way through to the end, chapter 22. But the seven letters actually, as we thought, only begin in chapter 2. And so cycle 1 really, we could say, does begin in chapter 1, but essentially we come to the letters in chapter 2. There are seven churches, and Christ is walking amidst, but at the end of this first cycle we see, as I said, Christ, John is given a glimpse of Christ on his throne. And that ought to give the churches great comfort. While he's here, he's on the throne, and he reigns supremely now, and he rules all things, work after the counsel of his own will. And so you notice to each of these churches, at the end it says, he that overcometh. That's the true church, we could say. There are many in the church, but not everybody overcomes. But those who overcome only overcome because they have the Spirit of Christ in them. Remember what John said, he that is in you is stronger than he that is in the world. And he that has begun a good work in you will see it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. And he will not relinquish one of his people. Now, this first cycle assures these churches that the Lord knows them perfectly. And each time what you'll see in this first cycle is he uses the word, I know thy works. It's the word edo. It's not the word gnosis, as we said last time, but it's the word edo, which means an intimate knowledge. So that's the first cycle, chapter 1 through to chapter 4. And then chapters 5 to chapter 7, we see the seven seals. The seven seals that are spoken of there. And uh, chapter 5 really describes a scroll sealed with seven seals. It's perfectly closed to prying eyes. They're there, but the seal is unloosed by Christ. And things are revealed in time. And none are found worthy, as we will read, to open up the seal. But by and by, the seals are opened up and various things happen. Now, what we see in the third cycle is some of those events, as I say, they synchronous, happening at the same time. We, we have in the third cycle, that's chapter 8 to chapter 11, the seven trumpets. Notice there are seven cycles Seven seals, and there's seven bowls. Seven is a special number, we could say, signifying complete in the book of the Revelation. And what are the seven trumpets? Well, they are warnings. They are warnings to this present world that God's wrath is coming. They are what people might call supernatural acts or natural disasters. But there's no such thing as a, as a natural disaster. We speak, sometimes when you might read an insurance document, they have a phrase called force majeure, major force. What they really mean is an act of God. Earthquakes, famines, these things. These are mighty trumpets, warnings to this present world that God is coming in judgment. And the final there is in... Revelation 11, verse 15, and it records the final trumpet and signals that the end has come. 
Judgment is then delivered, and the wicked are cast into the eternal lake of fire, and the righteous enter into a glorious new heavens and a new earth, those of the redeemed. And as you will see, throughout these seven synchronous cycles, there is a judgment day in view. It's not like there are seven judgment days, but we are reminded that it's there. It repeats itself. Just like we've sung that hymn, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. It's enforced every time we sing that, that hymn, afflicted saint to Christ draw near. As thy days, so shall thy strength be, taken from Deuteronomy. Words given by Moses, or given to Moses. And then the fourth cycle, chapter 12 to chapter 14, we see that the enemies of God and the church are identified. Satan and their wickedness and evil works are exposed. And uh, we can see them, we can identify them. And by the way, these things happen, and we see Satan identified throughout the gospel age. He's there. And there's nothing new under the sun. He's always up to his old tricks. And at the end of time, things are going to get worse. But it finally ends up in Satan and the world's destruction of the coming of the Lord in chapter 14. And then we see the saints in heaven, a multitude which no man can number before the very throne of God. And then the fifth cycle in Revelation chapters 15 to 16, we have the seven bowls. Again, that's signified there, the importance of the number seven. And the bowls are actually poured out. These bowls are those things which are poured out upon the earth. And they depict God's wrath. It's not only the trumpet, a warning, but it is actually the wrath of God now being manifested. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, even now the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. As men even, even now by God are given over to a reprobate mind. Even that in itself is part of God's judgment. But then there is a final judgment when all the ungodly are cast into the lake of fire. It's the great day of his wrath. But then sixthly, there is, in chapter 17 to chapter 19, the exposure and judgment of the harlot. Who is the harlot? Well, she pretends to be the true bride of Christ, but of course she's not. She is the false church, the harlot, who rides on the back of the beast, and we'll get to that when it comes. It's not the true church, the false church. She's a liar, but she prostitutes herself to the world. That's why she's called a harlot. And that's a mark of a, the true harlot. The final cycle we have in Revelation 20 to 22, and it's the great white throne of God where every man will stand before the Lord. And the books being opened up, men are judged according to their deeds. And then there is another book opened up called the Lamb's Book of Life. And everyone whose name is written in that book is not cast into the lake of fire. What a mercy. What a mercy. It's only because the Lamb who shed his blood for his people. 
And then they enter everlasting life while the wicked, everlasting destruction. So we're reminded, take no pride. Our names were there, written before the foundation of the world. We didn't get our names written in the book. It wasn't us that made a choice that made us to be saved. He chose us that we chose him. That's salvation. Now, having given you that overview, we come back now to chapter 2, verse 8 to the verse 11 this evening. But first of all, let's just see. Think last week, the church at Ephesus. We saw last week that there are there's a, there's a pattern as he writes to each one of these churches. And uh, what was that pattern? A pattern really was... There's an address to the church, and then secondly, Christ will give one of his distinct titles, and uh, then there's Christ's condemnation, and then there's the Lord's condemnation, and then there's a solemn warning to that church, and then there's his exhortation, and then seventhly, there is Christ's promise of everlasting blessing to those who obey his exhortation. But just think for a moment, there the church at Ephesus, very briefly. That was a good church. They were faithful in doctrine. But remember, they had lost their first love. Essentially, they had forgotten grace. Because grace always makes a man thankful. Grace says, I didn't get myself here. And grace produces love. Faith worketh by love as well. And it's remembering this, that while they were doctrinally sound, and while they were doing all the right things, they were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. They had lost their love for the Lord. How is that possible? When you forget grace, my friends, it's entirely possible. Because you begin to live and work thanklessly for the Lord. Every day we should be thanking God that we're alive. That we're not lost, and it should make you very humble. It shouldn't make you speak ill about other people. It should make you zip your mouth and just thank God. You are what you are by the grace of God. That's what the grace of God produces, a humble soul, a thankful heart, and a productive life. And it's all done for the glory of God. Everything we do as a church should be done for the glory of God. That's what Paul had to say to the Corinthians, remember? He said, for whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. Now, there was a church that was proud. They boasted in their spiritual gifts. They boasted in their men. But they were so foolish that he had to strongly admonish them. And the church here have to be admonished. They had John. John. The apostle was amongst the Ephesians. Paul was there for three years. He warned them. But they lost sight of this one thing. While they were doctrinally sound, they'd lost their first love. And remember this, we love him because he first loved us. And if you forget that, if you forget that he first loved you, and that's why he chose you, you're going to be mighty proud. And he that thinketh he stand, let him take heed lest he fall. Always go back to grace.
Peter said in Acts 15, 11, he said, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. He said to the Ephesians, Paul did, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Full stop. That's it. By grace are you saved. And if we're not careful, if we forget grace, you'll soon come to the conclusion that even the faith that you have is of yourself. Hear what I'm saying? We have to remember grace. Because even the faith that we claim to have, or that we have, we can claim as our own. It, came from, it didn't come from us. Never forget it. As a result, they became dry and loveless and thankless in their service. That was the problem. It was a good church, but with a major, major flaw. Now, we come to the church now at Smyrna tonight, after their very long introduction. But what is interesting here is that there is no condemning words to this church in Smyrna. The Lord does not have any condemnatory thing to say against them. It's not that the church was sinless. Of course, there were no doubt, as there is in this church, individual sins committed in individual lives. But as a whole, as a general tenor, there was nothing that was being done as a whole, collectively, as a church, that the Lord could say, I have a problem with you as a whole. There's nothing that really meets with the Lord's disapproval here. Of course, as I say, they weren't perfect. But this letter really is meant to encourage now, it's also meant to warn. I don't know if you'll see that, but I hope to bring that out this evening. Because it's him that is faithful, and even faithful unto death, even if it does mean your death, then you shall not enter the second death. We have been forced as a nation, not forced, but it's, it's been put upon us over this last few weeks since the, the death of our sovereign, to think about death. And people are, are very much thinking about death. People are dying every day, but I suppose when someone in such high office dies, we think about, where are they? My friends, here's the lesson. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. If you don't keep it, there is the second death. And you'll be saying, if it were only the first death. Now let me say this, all who are Christ's will not enter that second death. They will be prepared, whether king or street sweeper, to be faithful unto death. That's the mark of a Christian. That's a mark of somebody who's saved, who is the Lord's. What is important to you? This life, Paul said, we count our lives as nothing. And these people were counting their lives as nothing even now. 
So no matter what position you have in society, it doesn't matter. It was quite solemn. I don't know if you did watch the, the burial, but the crown, the orb, and the scepter were put upon the high altar. I know that's just formalism, but it reminds you that the queen and king and any authority in this world will have to put their crowns down one day and stand before Almighty God. And so will you. And what have you done with what has been given you? It's solemn, isn't it? We need to examine ourselves. The Lord knows. Will you stand before the Lord? Will you enter the second death? People have been given authority. People have been been given power. But what have they done with it? What about you? Now here we come to this church at Smyrna. Firstly, I want you to notice there's in this address to the church. Verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Now, let me just say a few things about Smyrna. Smyrna was a rival to the church at Ephesus. It was a port city. It was a thriving city. One of the great cities in modern-day Turkey. In terms of trade and commerce, it was a bustling city. It was a busy city. And uh, very famous. It was renowned for its, as I say, commerce, but also it was a place known for the study of medicine, place for schools, science, big public buildings. And there was a hill known as the Crown of Smyrna because around that hill were many other hills and it, it looked like a crown. Smyrna was about 35 miles from Ephesus, as I say, a port city. And it was also called the Crown City because it was surrounded by those hills which resembled a crown. It also had a great open-air theater that could house over 20,000 people at once. For that day, it was quite something. But it also was very loyal to Rome. And you know what that would mean? Loyal to this world. Loyal to Caesar. Now you can see the picture being built up here. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right, now secondly, notice the self-designation. And it's one of the distinct titles of Christ. And it's tailored, I want you to notice, it is tailored to this church. It's quite interesting. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. That title is tailored to this church. Why? Because he's going to speak about death, being faithful unto death. And you you notice, I didn't mention this last time, but to each one of these churches, there's a specific designation, but those designations are already given in chapter 1. For instance, you notice in chapter 1, verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and death. That is, he has the authority, he has the power over death. And it's a title that is meant to encourage these brethren who are being exhorted to be faithful unto death. And he tells them, I speak to you 
who was dead, but I'm alive. I have the power of a death and hell. And so the title here is repeated, reminding these people that he is the only one who is triumphant over death and has the power over death. He says in verse 10, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer, shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The very one that was crowned with a crown of thorns, the curse, will give a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Again, the whole of the body of Christ. Now thirdly, what we have is we're following the same pattern, Christ's commendation. Now it's, it's very similar. As I said, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia, there's no condemnation to these churches. There's not a general Sin that was being practiced. Again, it's not a sinless church. But he says here in verse 9, I know thy works. And tribulation. Now that would have been a comfort. He knows their good works. He knows their loyalty. He knows, friends, everything that we do for him. And why we do it, as we've seen to the church at Ephesus. What, to what end do we do it? I know thy works. I know them intimately. The Sunday school lesson that you prepare faithfully. The things that you do in the church, attending the door, coming on time, being early, being conscientious about all that you do, doing it with all your, I know thy works. And tribulation. Well, what kind of tribulation was this? Well, we'll notice here. First of all, let's just remember that our works are never in vain. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, sorry, 15. He said in verse 58, Therefore, my brethren, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Whatever we do for God and for his people is never in vain. I know thy works, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. But notice, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. But he says, but thou art rich. Now it seems that they have tribulation, persecution, because, and they have poverty here, because of economic hardship. There are people that are opposing them. This is, as I said, it's an opulent city. It's a, a place of commerce. If you wanted to get a, a job there, you'd be quite well paid. But, you know, Christians were despised in these days. It was a city of wealth, and Christians were very much ostracized, not only in Israel but throughout Southeast Asia and Macedonia, throughout the world. They always have been. But he says, but thou art rich toward God. Thou art rich. They're poor. And poverty. He says, I know you're poor. You don't have much. But they're rich. They're rich toward God. Remember what the Lord Jesus said 
Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now we know the Apostle Paul tells us, Yea, all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And there are various ways that you could be persecuted. He says, all that desire to live godly. They found it difficult. They found it hard. They were pressed. They were persecuted. And dear friends, let me remind you that throughout the gospel age, Christians will face great persecution, not only physically, but hardship because they refuse to swim the tide with the tide of iniquity in this world. It'd be very hard to reach the top of society. When I say top of society, I mean commerce and be a real Christian. Very hard. Because the world doesn't love Christians. Because it doesn't love Christ. Because it doesn't love God. Today, if a man loses his job, he may lose his job because he refuses to call somebody by their chosen or preferred personal pronoun. You know what I'm talking about. You know, people today... This whole business of gender identity, it's a big issue, isn't it? And I, I know one or two Christians who have said that they've been really indirectly threatened to lose their jobs because they will not put on the bottom of their email certain things or will not address people a certain way. This is the world, isn't it? We believe Just as the Lord Jesus said in the beginning, he created them male and female. Christians will suffer in their workplace because of this. You think of a nurse, a doctor today. They may lose their job because they refuse to take the vaccine. Or they don't agree with abortion. Especially if you're a doctor and nurse. Somebody asks your opinion. That could be a, a serious problem. We've heard of people having holiday homes and refusing to allow same-sex people to stay in the same room and then being threatened and, in fact, losing their business, guest houses, that sort of thing. Today, a Christian might be turned away from even a job interview because they simply have stated on their CV that they refuse to work on the Lord's Day. There's lots of ways Christians can be sidelined and persecuted. And these things are real. And let me say this, in every echelon or echelon of society, whether you're a king, whether you're a queen, whether you're a prime minister, whether you're a dustman collector, whether you're a postman, if you are not faithful to the Lord, do not expect to enter heaven, but expect, as we are told here, the second death. Solemn. 
doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what wealth you have, or what you've acquired, or what people have said about you. You will not enter heaven. What did the Lord Jesus say? Woe unto you. Luke 6, 26, when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Be very weary when men speak well of you. And the Lord says here to this church, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. What a comfort for them. You see, Christ sees everything. And these people have been laying up treasure in heaven because they they think more about what God thinks and what God wants than what the world wants. And the world smiles and money. There is that parable, as you know, of the rich farmer. where He said, take ease, my soul. That was many years. The Lord increased his crop that year. But we read, God said unto him, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be that thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You remember that time when the Apostle Paul, he reminds the Corinthians that while Paul was just a, he was a tent maker, he didn't look like he had much, didn't have a home, as such, didn't have a wife even, didn't have property, tent maker, going around, but he was going around doing the Lord's work. And what did he say? He said, but in all things approving ourselves, and he's here speaking about himself and about other ministers, as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by holy, the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God. He's, he's giving God all the credit for this, not himself. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true. As, well, the world thinks, or thought he was a deceiver, but he was true. But by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown, unknown to men and yet well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as chastened yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And then he says this, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Second Corinthians 6, verse 4 to the verse 10. Paul didn't have much in the way of worldly goods, neither did the church at Smyrna. But the Lord said, you know, you're rich. I want you to know that. You have been laying up treasure in heaven. You have been faithful. And this is such a commendation. Do you remember the man begging arms outside Solomon's porch there? And Peter came up, remember, and disciples with him, and he said, 
In Acts 3, 6, silver and gold have I none, but such as I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Friends, we can give people the truth. We have the bread of life. We have the word, don't we? Of course, the Lord will save his people. But we are rich if we have Christ and if we have contentment. What does the scripture say? Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's sure that we can take nothing out. This is great gain, says the Apostle Paul to Timothy. That's real gain. And so we have here these people that had very little, and maybe you have very little. Maybe you don't have a home. Maybe you don't even have a job. But if you have the Lord, that's everything. Isn't it? It's everything. Because this world's passing away. And the lust of it. And God will provide your needs according to his riches in glory by Jesus Christ. David could say, I've been young, I've now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He's ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. We may not have much, but we can say with Jacob, I have all things, all things necessary for life and godliness. And God will also give us grace and glory. And he said in his word, and no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. My friends, don't be impressed with wealth and opulence. As people, when they leave here, they have nothing if they don't have Christ. But then we have, again, something positive, he says, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Well, what does he mean here? Think of it. We know that Jews, by and large, even here in London, and we commend them for their hard work, they're hard-working people. But here are real first-century Jews that have been scattered. Many of these, Paul would be writing to here, are scattered in Southeast Asia, dispersed throughout Asia Minor. And there are those that saying that they Jews, real Jews. Now, what is a, a real Jew? Paul tells us, what is a real Jew? You just turn with me to Romans 2, verse 17. He's not condemning, he's not saying, or oh, go back to Jewry. He's not saying, go back to Abraham. He's not saying that. What is he saying? There are those that claim, we are the children of Abraham. We are God's people. The Lord is not saying to this church at Smyrna, go back to the things of the type and shadow of the Jew. Romans chapter 2, and by the way, if you were to study Romans chapter 2, there's condemnation to those who were claiming, and there were Jews in Rome, and Paul's writing to the church here in Rome, claiming to be real Jews and being justified by the law. But they were blaspheming God by not keeping the law. He said, thou art a breaker of the law. Come to verse 17 of chapter 2, Romans 2. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. So they, they have the law, they, they know it. 
But you notice, you come down to the verse 24, a great indictment, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Why? Because claiming to have the law, they were just breakers of the law. But you come down to the verse 28 there. What does it say? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. What is that? That's the new birth. That's the new heart. That's the circumcision of the heart which Paul speaks of to the uh, church there at Colossians, the the church at Colossae, chapter 2. It's the new heart. Circumcision without hands. It's called the circumcision of Christ. What does he say? But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. You see, that's a real Jew. When the Lord Jesus saw Nathanael in John chapter 1, what did he say? He said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whose mouth there is no guile. Nathanael was born again. So do you see that? There were these people who could see these suffering brethren. And the Jews were meant to help each other. Well, that's how Jewish communities are today. So that's how the Jews do well, and they do well. Because they do help each other out. But you know, in the law, they were meant to help even the Gentile out. When the Gentile was in need, who is my neighbor? The Lord Jesus had to give that that parable of the Good Samaritan. And here is this church at Smyrna, suffering, hardship, poor. And there are them that say they're Jews. Outwardly. But you know, just as James has to say, what use is your faith? If you see your brother in need, You say, my brother, all is well, go on your way. And you don't help him. With those that are claiming to be God's people here, and he's saying, look, these really aren't. These aren't the brethren. These aren't circumcised in heart. These are lost people. The rich. You suffer. You lose your jobs. Because you stand on my word. Because you don't agree with abortion. Because you don't agree with same-sex marriage. Because you won't swim with the tide of the modern church. And you want the world to speak well of you. And you want other churches to speak well of you. And you want other ministers to speak well of you. He says, be faithful unto death. You're rich. Who's addressing you? He that was dead, but is now alive forevermore. And if you die, what can death do? I've overcome death. Sixthly, the exhortation. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. 
My friends, in the hour of trial, God always gives the grace. Grace sufficient for the day. We sang there, didn't we? Afflicted saint, to Christ draw near. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Grace is not given today for tomorrow. But tomorrow's grace always is given. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And he even tells here, he says, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Who is behind the people of this world? The devil. The prince of the power of the air. The worketh now even in the sons of disobedience. It's the devil. He knows his time is short, we are told in the book of the Revelation. His wrath is great. The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried or tested. But here's the thing. While it's the devil, who's behind what the devil is? God is behind it, that ye may be tried, tested. What did Peter say? Peter said, Consider it a not strange thing that this fiery trial shall come upon you. God. God has ordained it so that you may be tried, so that your faith will be tested whether it's genuine. Now you notice, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. People say, well, what does that mean? Well, the number ten is very significant in the book of the Revelation. Ten, like I say, numerology, the study of numerology in Scripture is vital. Seven signifies completeness. Ten signifies sent by God. Just like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Plagues. Who sent the Ten Plagues? Pharaoh? No. God sent them. You've got ten fingers. Ten toes. They're given by God. Ten often represents sent by God. It's, it's not saying literal ten days. That We know saints were in a long time. But whatever time, it'll be short, but it's sent by God. And you just take comfort in that. Notice what he says, the devil shall. He doesn't say, I'll stop him. The devil is just doing according to the will of God. And these people will bear testimony. Look at the Apostle Paul. What was God doing there in the life of the Apostle Paul when he was in prison? Well, my goodness me, some of Caesar's household were saved in the prison. God works all things after the counsel of his own will, my friends. You don't worry about the details. Every event is planned and purposed by Almighty God. Nothing happens by chance or accident. Leaders, the powers that be, are ordained of God. Domitian, Nero, our kings, our queens, our prime ministers, everything is ordained 
by Almighty God. The powers that be are ordained of Almighty God. But here it is. Thou be faithful unto death. This is Christ's promise here of everlasting blessing if they heed his exhortation. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. He's been speaking about death. He brings them now life, the crown of life, even eternal life. That amazing. These people, they think they have life. I'm going to give you something far better than this world has. You're rich. You'll be with me in paradise. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Not just the church here at Smyrna, friends, but all the churches throughout the gospel age. How many churches have been persecuted? So I've often said Martin Luther, when he heard about the persecuted church, he said, let us sing Psalm 46 and let the devil do his best. God is our refuge and strength. Ever-present help. God says in that psalm, in the verse 10, be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the heathen. Settle your mind upon this child of God. Christ, he walks amidst the lampstands, but he's on his throne. Revelation chapter 4, in heaven. And he that is on the throne has conquered death. And has the keys of hell and death. And here's the thing. He that overcometh, shall not be hurt of the second death. Now that is both an encouragement, but it's also a warning. Those that love their lives will lose it. Those that keep their lives will lose it. Those that think more about men, rather about what God thinks, will be sent to hell. God's people are different. No matter what position in society you have, no matter what job you have, what men thought of you, what accolades, what titles you had behind you, what office you had, if you do not overcome sin, and if you do not hate evil, and if you do not love what is good, you will enter the second death. It's a warning as well as an encouragement, isn't it? James says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation or trial, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. You see, that's the baseline disposition. Do you love him? Or do you love the world? My friends, a a lot of people play at religion and leave this world and say they were Christians. But they proved they loved men and the praise of men more than they loved God. Cursed is the man, says the Apostle Paul, 
that loves not the Lord Jesus Christ. Accursed. God has given us so much. He's given us the truth. But don't be afraid. He'll give you grace for every hour of trial and affliction. You may not have much. You may lose out because of a God-hating will. But blessed are ye, said the Lord, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil and do all kinds of things to you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. This would have been such an encouragement. No doubt. Friend, Paul said, and I am now ready to be offered. and The time of my departure is at hand. But I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but all them, also that love is appearing. Do we love his appearing? Or well, we will if we love him. We want to thank him for all he's done for us and all that he is going to do, not only now, but on into eternity, for saving such wretches as we. Amen.